0: My name's Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames Cast. And on today's episode I'll be continuing with the Criterion Roundups with a look at the August and September releases. Now, I have been playing catch up with these episodes um, due to my short film making exploits. And uh, hopefully after this we will be back on track um, with the normal kind of running a month in arrears. Which So at the end of November there will be a look at the October releases. But this episode may be a little bit shorter than the normal ones as well because... Uh, there's two releases that I won't be talking about, which I'll get to for, and I'll explain the reasons why when I get to them. And also, I did watch these films quite some time ago, and they're not quite as fresh in the memory. My notes weren't that kind of expansive because I had other things on my mind at the at the time, you know, kind of uh, worrying about what I was going to feed the crew on day two and that kind of nonsense. So these might be a little bit kind of, um, I suppose. Lighter in their analysis, but certainly, I think you know, obviously, I'm very keen to crack on with these criterion roundups. So, I'm going to get started on the August releases and a double bill of the filmmakers um, Jean Pierre and Luc Dardenne, um, with spine number 620, which was The Promise, and 621, which was Rosetta. And I will begin, obviously, by taking a look at The Promise. Now, although I had heard of the Darth N brothers, I can readily admit I had never seen any of their films before *The Promise* and *Rosetta* arrived in the post, and it's something I will. Uh, expand on it a little bit when I talk about the film Lonesome, but for most part, when I'm buying these Criterion films, they are blind buys. Um, I'd say the vast majority are, in fact. And sometimes you sort of look at the uh, the, the the films that are coming out, and you um, you go through the ones that you get really excited for. For example, you know, Rosemary's Baby came out in October. I couldn't wait to kind of get that on Blu-ray. Although I only own it on DVD, but it's one of those films I'm familiar with, and I'm, I suppose I'm very comfortable with. And a lot of these films. I'm not, you know, and they sort of come through. Occasionally, you get kind of tripped up with films like um, Tiny Furniture, the Lena Dunham monstrosity that I talked about earlier this year. And it it kind of annoys me sometimes when you get films like that. And I know, you you know, the law of averages are you can't love everything that comes through the post. But when it was a case of La Promise and Rosetta, I sort of looked at the cover and I just thought, oh, God. And I know you should never, ever judge anything by its cover, a book or a film, I suppose. And I just thought, you know what? Um this is going to be a double bill which is going to kind of test me somewhat and indeed thou, some of my kind of trepidation about these films came true to an extent and on the other hand i was kind of pleasantly surprised in some respects and just to talk about the promise first it is a film that focuses around a young boy called Igor and his father Roger and they make a living from renting apartments to illegal immigrants now, Eagle has an apprenticeship at a local garage which his father doesn't really approve of because he wants to him to help him on the apartment all the time. And inside the apartment there are a variety of kind of desperate people from all over the world and most in particular a guy called Amadou who is an African immigrant. And quite early on in the film, Roger and Eagle bring over Amadou's wife, Asita, and their young baby. Now... There's some work going on at the apartment block and tragically Amadou falls from some scaffold and as he lies on the floor dying he makes Igor promise him that he will take care of Asita and the baby which Igor does. Now, the film is essentially about Igor trying to reconcile this promise with his father's wishes and Roger is one of, I think, the most compelling I suppose in general film talk the word would be protagonist or I, I, you know, I suppose you could call him kind of the villain of the piece because he is one of these kind of very manipulative characters who uses all the kind of tricks in the trade from physical violence to the kind of the more mental abuse. Now the reason why I kind of talk about Roger is because it instantly became aware to me of where I'd seen or certainly where I'd read material like The Promise Before and it reminded me in many respects of a Charles Dickens novel. Jeremy Rena, who plays Igor gives a captivating performance as this young boy who is really kind of torn between trying to do what's right and also in a way try and placate his father knowing full well that by doing that he is essentially doing something which is incredibly bad and the relationship between him and roger and roger was played by olivier grumet who will also appear in rosetta was because there was always this sense that roger could do something incredibly violent and heinous and although he doesn't really kind of do anything like that in the film he is an incredibly manipulative and calculating person who has absolutely no conscience when it comes to the fact that they are screwing over these poor and desperate people because I, I sort of forgot to mention actually that the way they sort of um treat Amadou when he dies is they just simply hide the body and tell Asita that he has left and they don't know where he's gone and kind of Roger's master plan to stop Asita from trying to find out the truth is to dupe her into thinking that Amadou has gone to um, a nearby city whereupon he wants to have her sold into sex slavery and that is I suppose the um, I suppose a good indication of what a complete bastard he is but like all kind of like sort of Dickensian um, characters Igor uh, has a sound moral sense which he which he allows to guide his actions during the film and it's quite funny the relationship he begins to have with a sitter because she really doesn't like him at all she's a very forthright person she has she she doesn't care that he's trying to be nice to her she just wants to find out the truth about her husband and the film works towards a climax which it will come back to something as well in Rosetta which I think um in a, in many respects you want these films to have a an ending which is certainly more um I suppose, Hollywood in nature, and that's certainly something I will be bringing up in a uh, weekend. But as I was watching The Promise, it is a incredibly punishing film. It is only 90 minutes long, but I it certainly felt like it was going on a lot longer, and that is one of the, I suppose, when you're watching a film that is about a slightly uncomfortable subject, and um, it certainly isn't um, I suppose a pleasing film to watch. It doesn't look very pretty, and you know, it doesn't. It's not meant to either. It's a very gritty, downbeat, grey film, and it, it it's strange because I've I've been to Belgium a couple of times, where this film was made, and it is not the nicest looking place in Europe. I mean, this was actually filmed in a place called Sarre in Belgium, and um, it's a very sort of. That kind of modern, but modern in terms of it being made in the sixties with these kind of you know these huge um, kind of industrial buildings and just just grey and bleak. And although and all this film was filmed uh, was actually made in nineteen ninety six, but you know it just looks like this kind of place that was sort of prefabricated, probably came and ro- arrived in prefabricated uh, blocks on the backs of lorries and was kind of thrown up in order to kind of generate a bit of. Um, Uh, industrial output in the area and hasn't really kind of changed since and uh, you can see how towns like this just swallow people like Igor up you know there isn't much in the way of hope and there isn't much in the way of kind of you know ever getting out of these places and I thought it was kind of a nice contrast because you have these very desperate idealistic and ultimately quite naive immigrants coming into this town who, who are there to kind of you know, they're there to kind of start a new life and kind of live the dream as fact and all that happens is that they get exploited by these people who have been so kind of beaten down by the environment and that kind of you know, making money out of their misery is the only thing that they can kind of have any interest in doing and Roger you know he knows every trick in the book he can you know he can get the kind of the right papers for people and this kind of thing but really they're not going to go anywhere all they're going to be is you know minions to him and it's interesting because, you know, obviously the, the film that came up before this in the Criterion Collection was La Havre, and I, I'm i not sure how deliberate it was, you know, perhaps if the kind of the uh, the people at Criterion sort of thinking they'd do a sort of double bill of kind of films tackling the theme of immigration. Sometimes I, I don't know whether I'm looking too much into it, but I certainly think that they, the Criterion Collection, they do sometimes kind of pair things up um, by kind of different filmmakers. And I don't know perhaps if this was something they were thinking of, but... When you look at, um, I suppose if Le Havre is this modern day fairy tale, I suppose Le Promise is the kind of polar opposite of that. It is as bleak and as, I suppose, nihilistic as you can possibly get. The kind of thing I was thinking about when I was watching it was sort of, it reminded me in many respects of the films of kind of like people like Mike Lee and kind of earlier Ken Loach, um, for those of you who might be familiar with films like Raining Stones and things like that, which were, you know, they're not necessarily what you would call sort of, high entertainment but they are kind of quite compelling nonetheless overall I did enjoy the promise um, as much as I could do it's one where I actually picked up the blu-ray of this as well and um, I sort of you know I'm a, I'm a, I'm a i am am a fan of kind of bleak urban landscapes if, if anyone's kind of familiar with the films of Michelangelo Antonioni um, I think there is a kind of beauty in the starkness of these kind of places. It's a bit annoying actually because I wanted to try and do something quite similar with my short film but the location I wanted to do it on was um, unavailable on the day and I guess in that respect I did sort of really kind of warm to the film on its uh, visual basis. The story is like I said it is very compelling and I think it goes in a direction where you will feel that the ending is fully justified if perhaps not what you necessarily wanted. At this year's Cannes Film Festival, a simple story, so touching, so true, so raw, so real, won the hearts of judges and the Palme d'Or for best picture. This fall, October Films proudly presents... Emily DeCaine, winner of the award for Best Actress. In what Janet Maslin of the New York Times has hailed as a profound and beautifully realized film. From Luc and Jean-Pierre Dardenne, the acclaimed filmmakers of La Promesse. So spine number 621 was the Dardenne brothers 1999 film Rosetta now when I spoke about having my um, sort of reservations about these films um, Rosetta was certainly the one that made them all come true because when I speak about these sort of reservations I think sometimes when you make films which are I guess the wording of this will have to be quite kind of careful when, when, when you're making films about people who live at the lower end of society and I don't mean that in a kind of derogatory way I don't mean they're kind of like you know, thick or stupid or anything like that I mean it in the, in the fact that they are kind of people who are sort of financially struggling as it were I sometimes feel that these films veer into a kind of class voyeurism And they become quite hard to kind of get over the fact that they are just hitting you over the head that, you know, how awful these types of people's lives can be. Now, I've worked in children's services um, with Manchester City Council and I know um, that there are some, you know, young people, it it, it seems amazing um, and quite kind of surprising, but there are 16-year-olds who live in England who have to give up school so they can get jobs so they can pay for their families and you know it might be because you know the mother has alcohol or drug problems perhaps you know the father or you know also perhaps you know the father there's mental health issues or something like that and I mean it isn't uncommon that you have 16 year olds who are raising their baby siblings and who are working three jobs and basically what you find with these kind of young people is that they grow up incredibly quickly but Rosetta is essentially a film which um, kind of echoes one of these stories. There is a young girl, um, obviously the titular Rosetta, played by Emile Ducuin, who has to work to try and support her alcoholic mother. Now, they live in a caravan park in Belgium, and Rosetta has to kind of go out and get jobs where she can. We see her right at the beginning. She gets sacked from a job, and she basically... Her entire life is spent trying to provide for her mother. Now, her mother obviously she's an alcoholic. She also you know she's kind of a part-time prostitute. She does sexual favors for the guy that owns the trailer park, so they can kind of get out of paying bills and things like that. And it was an incredibly hard film to watch. And I think the one of the reasons why I found it so hard to watch was because of the style that the Dardenne brothers went for. The camera seems to be literally about three inches. From Rosetta's face the entire time. Now I know they're sort of going for this kind of like verite film, and it does have an incredibly kind of um, brisk pace to it. It, it. You know, it doesn't. It's not one of these kind of reflective films, really. It just sort of kind of constantly goes on showing um, Rosetta trying to you know do anything basically to get food. You know, she kind of has a she runs a kind of a fishing line into a, I think it's like a um, a lake where kind of I think it's like carp or something are being um, bred. You know, so she's kind of constantly having to do this and she gets a job working at a kind of a look kind of like a waffle bar um i suppose a, a waffle uh concession which is run by um a guy who seemed to be called to referred to as the boss and again it's played by olivia gourmet and this guy i, I you know i'm sure he's a very nice man in real life but um it, just on the basis of these two films he's, he's he just comes across as such an arsehole like a callous bastard but what i found to be really hard about rosetta was the fact that it did feel quite not not sort of preachy but more kind of like you know in a way sort of patronizing you know look how bad this is you know you know this poor girl has to kind of go through this day in day out and it just hammers the point home over and over again and it the performance by Emile, um Ukraine is absolutely stunning I think she did win the can award that year for it I mean she you really do feel for this girl there is a scene where she's kind of Rosetta's just lying in bed and she's just sort of fantasizing about having a sort of a normal life and on the one hand it's an incredibly tragic moment you know and, I, and you know again I've seen this with um, you know working children's services that kind of the aspirations for young people in these types of situations are you know, they just want a kind of just to work one job you know which seems you know, when you're kind of like 16 17 that's yeah you know, I, I remember sort of i had a weekend job when i was that age and basically that money used to go on um you know books and videos and things like that you know and i, I went back to kind of a, a, a quite a nice house and kind of you know i didn't sort of seem to struggle or want for anything And you know when you see the other side it is it's quite eye-opening but and it, in a way, I think Rosetta's heart is in the right place with, the, with what the kind of the Dardenne brothers are trying to do. It did actually kind of um, provoke quite a lot of um, debate in Belgium when they actually kind of uh, re-evaluated the laws they had on young people working in the minimum wage and things like that. So you know, it did have a kind of a pretty positive outcome. But I, I, did, I think you could level the criticism at it that it does sort of veer into, I, I suppose, a, a kind of a preaching mindset that it may kind of put you off it I mean it's it's a very very hard film to honestly recommend to people it's not enjoyable at all and again I I think the style really got in the way of it because it was just like just give it a little bit of time to breathe and and, you know again it was only sort of like 90 minutes long but it felt like I've, I've been sat there for about three hours I found it exhausting in a way and I think um I although it doesn't sort of have that I suppose the, sort of the misogyny of someone like Lars von Trier um, it, it it did sort of remind me of the kind of, of well the experience of watching his films I was sort of very much felt like it was kind of the f- films that were kind of been sort of I suppose forged in the same place and it was come the ending as well it would have been so and I'm not going to kind of ruin anything really by sense but in a way you wanted someone to like kind of turn up and say, oh, hi, Rosetta, you know, um, your your great aunt blah-de-blah died, here's three million euros or whatever, you know, off you go and lead a nice life now. But it isn't that type of film, right? It it doesn't give you anything resembling that ending. And I think, again, perhaps it's this very pessimistic in a way, you know. Young people like this, you know, they do, they are, it's part of a, a cycle that continues really. Um from generation to generation, and Rosetta doesn't give you the satisfaction of knowing that anything's gonna be all right in the end, which for some people they may find that a little bit too um depressing, but other people may kind of really enjoy it. I think it's a film that has definitely has a social conscience to it um more so perhaps than the promise which I felt was uh, slightly more of a kind of a although they're both very personal stories. I think this is a kind of there's something more sort of universal to Rosetta. Going on with the character, but overall, you know, I was, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm glad I own these two films. I don't know when I'll be kind of rushing back to them. They both got um, pretty decent prints um, on the Blu-rays that came. They're not the type of films, in, them. they're not going to be kind of like showing. You're not going to sit your friends down, and say, "Look at my new fifty-inch television. I'm going to put Rosetta on, so you can kind of marvel at the uh, the screen." But they're certainly both, you know, very watchable. They've um, certainly i definitely think blu-ray is the best format to watch them on because uh again the sort of the muted look i'm a big fan of that in films and i think that uh, certainly these two uh benefit from that kind of stylistic choice okay so moving on to spine number 622 which was andrew hayes 2011 film weekend what kind of stuff is it you want me to say just talk about last night you know what happened what you wanted to happen it's for an art project yeah and people can listen to it. If you make the grade, yeah. Okay. Um. I saw you in the club and I thought you were out of my league or whatever. And um, yeah, we came back here, didn't we? And then you kissed me. You said you took my shirt off. I just thought that we were having a really nice time. It was lovely. It was more than enough for me. So, um, sorry, Glenn, if I don't make you grade. Have you got a boyfriend? <laughs> no, I don't have a boyfriend. I don't do boyfriends. Um... You know what it's like when you first <laughs> sleep with someone you don't know? Yeah. You like the blank canvas, and it gives you an opportunity to project onto that canvas who you want to be. Can't you just understand that some people just want to be happy? Are you happy? I am absolutely fine. sure you are. Don't presume that you understand it. me. You think just because I want a relationship yeah, that you know it. me. No, I don't. C- I can see it in your eyes, Glenn, that you want one too. I'm going away tomorrow. How long are you going for? Uh, about two years, I think. I don't want love. What's going on? This guy I met I met him two days ago. He doesn't like me, I don't know him. No. <sighs> two days nothing. And he's gone away. You gotta see him when he gets back, didn't mm-hmm. you? He's not coming back. I don't want you look like you wanna kiss me. I do. Go on, then. So, Weekend is the type of film that bleeding-heart liberals like me can be incredibly smug over the fact that when we see two men having gay sex on screen, we don't feel uncomfortable or in any way embarrassed. And, of course, it's the type of film where gun-tooting right-wing extremists will watch and will say that it's about time that Jesus returned armed with a Kalashnikov and started killing us all for allowing this type of debauchery to go on in our culture. Of course, though, is complete and utter bollocks what I've just said. However, I do think there is a certain elephant in the room which we need to get out of the way with Weekend Witches. It is essentially a film about two gay men who, over the course of a weekend, fall in love. And there is very explicit gay sex and there is very explicit references to what gay men do when they have sex, and for some, and for some it might be a bit too much. And I think uh, you know, I don't sort of just say men in that. I think you know, some women might you know might kind of not like this as well. And when like I can say that, there was this sort of, I sort of noticed it more and more. Which is, I mean, i, I mean certainly a liberal, but there was this kind of like a liberal smugness, I called it. Which you know, if someone watched this and said you know, I, and, and said well, it, well, it's a bit too much. I don't, I don't think I want to carry on watching it. It's not, it's not some sort of you know horrendous statement about them they're not you know some kind of ridiculous homophobic person you know, people have the same reaction to watching heterosexual sex scenes it's you know just some for some people it you know just because you don't like kind of you know sex scenes in general or things like that or you know people talking quite crudely and bluntly about sex doesn't mean that you kind of you know you're you're a raging homophobe or you know you you're sort of you know, some kind of prude it's just some people don't like that and I think it does annoy me about liberalism sometimes where people are very quick to cast judgment on people who you know for for very personal reasons which aren't sort of you know anything other than the fact that they kind of viscerally don't like seeing that type of thing so you know it is something which i think people you know talk about uh, when they kind of you know certainly i've spoken to people about weekend a few people who have kind of commented on it and it, i don't think it's sort of a massive reflection of the person themselves I think certainly when I watched Weekend, there was something very kind of universal, which it doesn't matter, kind of the fact that it's a story about two gay men, things like, you know, when one of the characters is kind of agonising over to over to what to put in a text to someone, you know, their types of things, we've all been in those types of situations, and I think that certainly that was how I found this film to kind of really kind of move me in many ways. Now, it follows the story of... Two gay men, uh, one called Russell, played by Tom Cullen, and one called Glenn, played by Chris New, and they meet up in a club one night, go home, have sex at Russell's apartment, and then, over the next few days, form a very close relationship. And I don't know much about gay culture. Um, I'm not gay myself, so I don't really kind of know the, I suppose, the kind of the hang-ups and the, I, I guess the kind of the struggle that some gay men have I suppose lesbians as well have coming you know have they have when it comes to kind of reconciling that with kind of what society expects of people but I found Weekend to be a really incredibly moving film in many respects I think it's I was reminded of films like Before Sunrise and Before Sunset and what I think really kind of anchors this film is the incredible performances by Cullen and Newt especially Cullen who I guess he is the sort of the central focus of the film I mean they both kind of have almost equal screen time but it certainly feels like it's kind of a Russell story as it were and in many respects he's the type of kind of gay person who I think perhaps society's a little bit more comfortable with you know he isn't sort of um outwardly camp or anything like that he certainly you know I love it when people say things like oh you know I, I don't mind gays as long as I don't sort of you know Th- throw it down my throat, and you know, I've heard people say like, you know, if they start snogging and shagging in front of me and all this kind of stuff, and it's just like, I oh, really, how many times have you been in a pub, and a heterosexual couple have walked in, sat next to them, oh, don't mind us, and started having sex? You know, it's such a ridiculous fucking observation to make, but I, I, I sort of feel that that Russell was—he's certainly a lot more kind of repressed than Glenn who is you know a little bit more in your face. But you know, why, why should he sort of just sort of sit in the corner and kind of? do what kind of society feels more comfortable with him doing and there is a sort of a, a conflict between the two as to how you know they kind of perceive their kind of sexuality and the how they deal with it and i don't have kind of much knowledge of the kind of the trials and tribulations that face gay men but i can imagine it is it, you know for some people it's something that's incredibly hard to kind of deal with and what sort of emerges over the course of the film is the fact that they both really have kind of far deeper issues going on which they kind of have got to kind of deal with and come to terms with and meeting each other is the catalyst that is allowing them to do that about it's a very cathartic film for them both in many respects and as i was watching it there is a kind of a revelation quite early on um, to do with glenn and I, I suppose, as the f- the film was going on, you'd be kind of come increasingly aware of the fact that there is a kind of ticking clock storyline going on. And I talked about sort of wanting certain endings for films. And the best one I can ex- in recent memory I can think of was Up in the Air, the George Clooney film, where I thought you know this is a you know Hollywood A list star being in a in a kind of you know a medium budget Hollywood film. And that film does not have the Hollywood ending, and I think the thing about Weekend, one of the reasons why I kind of enjoyed it so much was that it reminded me of David Lean's brief encounter in many respects, and um, certainly the final five sort of five minutes of this, I was sort of really wanted to have the the Hollywood ending, and I, and they, they kind of the characters even talk about it, you know, they, they I think they make a reference to the film Notting Hill. And brilliantly I think Andrew Haig manages to restrain himself. And I I I I think that is one of the kind of the when you sort of when you've made a film and it sounds a bit kind of pretentious at my own ass, but there are so many things in when you're kind of writing and directing things like that that you want to do that you sort of you know deep down that if you do them you're kind of gonna be betraying what you're trying to do. And I think Andrew Haig brilliantly kind of just manages to take a step back and look at his film a lot more objectively, and gives it an ending which I think is isn't perhaps what you might want, but is indeed very very profound. And there is a moment in it where it's it, it's something that harkens back to something that Glenn does earlier on, where it's kind of the role reverse and kind of Russell does something that that to me was the most moving part of it. And that was the sort of the kind of the resolution that I wanted. His character has sort of come through the other end of this film as a kind of profoundly different person, and. I thought it was a really positive film about kind of the relationships that people have for each other and how you know we do change each other's lives. I mean, you know, sometimes our kind of interactions with people might be kind of fleeting, but they leave a long-lasting effect on us that kind of helps us through our lives. And I think Weekend is certainly a celebration of this. Obviously, as well, you know, it does have you know certainly um, it does deal with kind of like a lot of kind of gay issues and you know around kind of relationships and sex and that type of thing, but. I think, you know, to sort of pigeonhole it as being just this kind of gay romance kind of does an injustice to it, I think there is something a lot more universal going on it, and something which it doesn't matter kind of what kind of, you know, sexual persuasion you are, I think there is certainly a very kind of positive message that comes out of Weekend, and I was just so impressed with the performances all round as well, and especially, you know, Tom Cullen again, he really was one of those people who you um, find yourself warming to, and... Sort of rooting for really, and I it, it's strange because you know, sometimes when you watch films, you, you sort of the, the credits roll and you sort of you, you're very aware that you've been watching a film. But to me, I, I found Cullen's performance so sort of realistic that it's, it, it sort of feels like kind of like you know, Russell's an actual person out there. And you know, it's I, I had the same thing when, when my girlfriend and I were watching Alias, you know, she was sort of convincing her, Sydney Bristow was you know, because the character seems so sort of real. I know it sounds ridiculous in the context of Alias, but you know. I remember that kind of moment where Sydney's giving birth, and Tyler was like, "My girlfriend," so I called Tyler, and she was saying, you know, "Oh, you know, she felt so sort of sorry for Sydney and all this kind of thing." And it was you know, out there in the world she existed. and That's how I sort of felt about Weekend. It was definitely a an eye-opening film and one which I think if you can, you know, if you, and one which I kind of implore you really to kind of seek out because I think it was. Um, one of the best sort of modern romances that I've seen in a long time and it it has its moments of being very dramatic, very funny also and above all I found it incredibly moving. Okay, so next up it was spine number 623 and with Paul Ferris's 1928 film Lonesome. Now, I talked before a little bit about how I blind buy nearly every film that comes through in the Criterion Collection and sometimes I uh, have films that come through and I'm not so keen and one of the reasons why I wanted to do these shows was because I was buying these films every month and... I wasn't watching any of them really. I'm still. I was kind of ashamed to admit it, but you know, there's what 623 films now in the Criterion Collection. I'd probably say, despite owning all of them, I've probably at most seen half, which is kind of ridiculous when you think about the kind of the expense and everything like that. But I suppose that's kind of the uh, the thing about having a uh, Criterion addiction. But every now and then, a disc comes through the post, and I am sort of kind of mad in one respect in the fact that i've just discovered a film that i sort of wonder where it's been all my life and lonesome was one of those glorious moments where i think after about five minutes i can kind of without any kind of hyperbole saying i genuinely thought i was watching a film that will probably go on to be one of my favorites ever made and the the great thing about this was I'd never heard of Lonesome before. It certainly wasn't a film which I don't think you could call lost. It has been in the kind of the film, the, I suppose, the film community conscience ever since it came out. I, I know listening to the features on this that um, Michelangelo Antonioni was a huge fan of it, and um, and it didn't really surprise me that Antonioni was a, a big fan of it. I think some, some of the obviously that the film's called Lonesome for a reason. It is sort of really about these kind of two lone souls. But you now I get into really. the the very kind of basic story Um, there's two characters Mary and Jim and they both live in New York and they're both as the title suggests very lonely and they work in kind of dead-end jobs and one weekend they all decide to go to the beach they don't know each other at all they meet at the beach and over the course of the next 24 hours slowly fall in love it is a very very simple story there's not much kind of kind of subplot or kind of further context to it it's really just about these two people and I have to be brutally honest with you I don't often get that kind of very emotional at films and this one really really got to me and I I, it was strange when I was talking earlier about kind of look at these sort of unofficial kind of pairings perhaps that criteria do. And in in, in a in a way I suddenly I was reminded a weekend whilst I was watching this film because um, i mean there are kind of films about these kind of lost souls meeting up and kind of forming a very strong bond. But, you know, there is not really much as I said to say about the story. It's just Mary played by Barbara Kent and Jim played by Glenn uh Trayon um kind of going to the beach and after that they go to a fair and they kinda get lost and they're trying to kind of find each other because um they've really managed to connect with someone who's going to kind of alleviate the uh, the loneliness that they have of living in a huge city. Now, the film was made in 1928, and it was kind of at the end of the silent era and the beginning of the sound era. And in some respects, I think Lonesome, for the most part, it is a silent film. There is a few scenes of dialogue um, in it, but for the most part, it works pretty well as a silent film. And I think the thing about silent films from this area was i i the the filmmakers themselves you know P- poor ferris really had they kind of mastered the art of storytelling without the need for dialogue and i, I certainly was acutely aware of that when i was watching murnell sunrise but this i just it, it's really strange because at the moment i'm editing my short film and i'm actually editing a version of it a silent version of it which is i'm Hoping will be the sort of you know the basis for which the sound version will spring com- will come from. As I was watching Lonesome, I became so aware that Fails was just so in love with the craft of filmmaking. He uses the kind of all kinds of different effects and kind of overlays. And yeah, obviously there's times where he's kind of re round the camera and shot kind of different layers over the image. And it re- it's just this kind of mad kaleidoscope of different styles and Really, it's like he's kind of just said, you know, w- what can we do? Let's do it. You know, and, and it reminded me in many respects of the film Man with a Moody Movie Camera, the, the Russian film, which I spoke about um, a few episodes ago when I was doing the Sight and Sound uh, Top 100 poll because nowadays perhaps filmmakers are a little bit more reserved. I, I, I certainly think, um, certainly mainstream filmmakers, they don't kind of seem to let their hair down really as as much as they used to. And uh, when they do, I suppose when people do do that, we kind of tend to sort of see it more kind of in the sort of the art house arena, not so much the mainstream. But Lonesome, it was a big, but it was well, a reasonable budget um, studio film. And it's amazing to see something that is so visually unique and exciting and competitive. Even by today's standards, I still think it's a very impressive film. You know, it's someone who's chucking all these different styles at the screen, and you can sort of see the influence of Hollywood musicals. German expressionism, kind of almost kind of Soviet style montage editing, and it's just this mad concophony of image and the story itself. Like I said, as it's quite basic, I think you know it probably needs something to be uh, sort of like elevate the interest in it. And I think ferros manages to make such a compelling visual work that the story is almost secondary. And I don't mean that in a kind of derogatory way, but it's just something which as you're watching it if you love film and you love the kind of the technicality and the mechanics of filmmaking Lonesome will kind of suck you in and I'm just so glad that Criterion have put this film out because you know I never heard of it before it arrived on my doorstep and it it was a bit of a strange month August I'll get to get to it in the kind of the roundup kind of thing but a lot of the films that came through and I was talking about kind of the promise and Rosetta that you know even weekend to an extent I wasn't overly excited about watching them and I had kind of had the same feeling about Lonesome and as I sort of sat there and watched it I was just like oh my god you know this is one of those moments where you know I've, I've had it before where you you sort of get this niggling feeling that the film that you're watching, and you know, it's going to be one of those ones that kind of stays with you for a very long time. And it's strange because in a way, I, I, I was wanting to kind of perhaps uh, talk about this for a lot longer. And what I've decided to do is perhaps I might come back to Lonesome again in the future and uh, do a kind of a real sort of full length, you know, kind of hour long look at the film because it, I, I think it is so worthy of further examination um, I think some people might find it quite twee, a little naive, um, even perhaps a little bit sickly. sickly. Uh, I, I didn't. It managed to bypass all the kind of cynical, bitter side of me and just entertain me and move me at the same time. And I, I, as I said before, I, th- I think it's a film which I admire a great deal purely for its kind of technical ability. And also, you know, you do like these characters. You You can really empathise with... You know, I moved to a big city from the country in 2003, and you know, although I had friends up here, you know, there were times when you kind of, you know, you do feel quite alone, and um, you know, those kind of inner doubts. You know, what have I done? And you sort of realize you've left behind all your other friends and your family, and uh, you know, you do. I suppose you do long to kind of meet a kind of a kindred soul out there, and you I'm know, lucky, and I did. But you know, I think lonesome. The echoes of it, I could see bizarrely enough in Billy Wilder's *The Apartment*, because that was another one where, you know, sometimes cities swallow people up. And despite it seems quite strange, doesn't it, that you have um, an area where there's so many people, kind of s- contained, and yet you you have p- that that in itself breeds a loneliness, and it does. You know, it, it does happen when you know, people get relocated, especially kind of in America, where you had you know the kind of mass migration of young people from. The country to the cities, especially in the post-war era, which you know obviously is when uh, the apartment was set. But overall, it was a, a joyous film, a, a a genuine kind of. It's it made up for any of the films that I've bought this year from the, from doing these Criterion films, especially you know the aforementioned Lena Dunham's um, Tiny Furniture. That kind of it pissed me off for days that I had to buy that film, and it kind of irritates me now even looking at it. But this kind of more than makes up for any of those duds, it was an absolute joy to behold. It came packed with features as well and the Blu-ray as well. You might sort of think that, you know, that the print wasn't, it isn't in great condition, but the Blu-ray, they've really done a fantastic job on the restoration of this. And you know, it's, it's again, it's just so good that Criterion have picked this up because it might have slipped between the uh, format cracks, as it were, and could have, could have disappeared for a lot longer. Now, there was another film that was released in August, which was Quadrophenia, and I am going to be discussing Quadrophenia, um, possibly on another podcast, so it was actually kind of uh, spine number 64, so I'm not going to talk about it today, I did pick up the Blu-ray and I have watched it, and um, I'm pretty, uh, well, I suppose I'm itching to speak about it, because I do love Quadrophenia, and uh, the Blu-ray was uh, something that I really enjoyed, but I'm going to leave it for another podcast and that I'm just going to conclude August's uh, releases there now obviously I've got to do my pick of the month and I don't think it will come as much as surprise that I'm going to have to uh, kind of push you in the direction of Lonesome I think this is a film that the story isn't going to be anything new to you but I think if you kind of have a love of cinema I think this is one where there will be a lot in there to enjoy, and just the just the sheer and just the sheer kind of joy that Ferris is having with the camera, and just every aspect of the film. I, I think it's a kind of a quite wonderful, uplifting, joyous affair. That uh, you, it's a sign of a great film. and It's only sixty nine minutes, and it's a, it's a sign of something I suppose when you watch it, and then literally the next thing you do is watch the film again because I, I just sat there and I've watched it four times since, and I, it's, it's one of the reasons why I think I might have to kind of. Go back and do a close-up episode on this, and kind of go a little bit deeper into it because um, it is certainly one of those films that uh, I have—I'm have, pretty certain will kind of be one of my favourites for all time. So, so August pick of the month: Paul Ferris's *Lonesome*. Meet Paul and Mary Bland. Are you two- you must swing, right? Wrong. Good night. We're still We're so lucky to have found each other. A typical American couple. I know. Good night, dear. Sweet dreams. With a typical American dream. Uh, and typical American problems. You are through at play Liquor. Mr. Leach, I'm sure the bank has nothing to worry about. It's gonna get everything that's coming to it. The bank wants to see what it's getting oh, into. With the Blands, life was just a rat race. A cartoon mouse. Oh, great. Trigger likes you already. No, we like B and D, but we don't like S and M. We met at the A and P. But they found a way to beat it. Until Mr. Raúl Mendoza, cómo esta mi They met a hot-blooded, emotional, crazy Chicano. I'm a hot-blooded, emotional, crazy Chicano. Eating Raúl. Is it a thriller? Is it a romance? This was very wrong. Is it a tragedy? Excuse me. May I sit down? Yes. Yeah. Is it a comedy? Yes, but not the type that you're used to. Eating Raoul. On to September's releases. And first up was spy number 625, Paul Bartel's Eating Raoul okay so before actually this criterion Ride, I would never seen eating Raoul and I think I had it in my head it was a kind of deadly serious film and I was quite surprised when it began and I quite very very quickly realized it was in fact a comedy and it was one of those where after about five minutes I was absolutely I was laughing quite a lot and I thought me and this film are really really gonna get on and you know I'm gonna absolutely love it but unfortunately that you know the film is only kind of about um, one hour, 20 minutes. Eating Raoul, I think, felt like a joke that just went on and on and on a little bit too much. Now, the story focuses around two characters, Paul and Mary Bland. What Paul is a wine dealer and Mary is a nurse. And they basically want to get out of their kind of rather, not so much kind of poverty-ridden existence, but they they dream of opening a restaurant and basically just kind of not having to do the crappy day jobs that they do and obviously the kind of the big problem in their lives is their lack of money to help them accomplish this. Anyway one night on their floor of their apartment there is a swingers party going on and Paul and Mary hit upon a plan which will make them very rich and help them achieve their goal of opening a restaurant and that is, and that is to set Mary up as a dominatrix, invite rich clients to their apartment where Paul will kill them and they can steal all the money they have. Things are slightly complicated with the arrival of Raoul who discovers what the pair are doing and tries to get in on it by stealing the cars of the people they're killing and selling them on for money. Raoul and Mary also end up having an affair behind Paul's back and things get slightly more complicated from there on. Just for clarification's sake as well, uh, Paul is actually played by Paul Bartel, the director, and Mary Warnonoff, who um, plays Marion very strange because i'm sure I, I i've seen her in loads of things before when i kind of checked out our imdb page um i kind of i, I hadn't and i don't know where this comes from she looks like i'm trying to work out who she looks like and i think it might be faye dunaway and somehow i've got them confused i don't know but um she certainly were seems to be an actress who i think she said she should have had a bigger career than she has by the looks of things i think she's pretty wonderful but the thing about eating raoul was um it starts it starts off really with this kind of um kind of ridiculous kind of montage and voiceover talking about the kind of moral degradation of Los Angeles and what it really reminded me was was in many ways uh, a screwball comedy now I'm not a big fan of those films I don't find them very funny I think they um, I think their their humour is something which I simply I, I simply don't sort of get or enjoy well it's not that I don't get it I just simply don't enjoy it and kind of E.T. was a very very sort of twisted version of one of these and I liked it a great deal for that fact but like a lot of these kind of films, I think that the premise really can't be serviced by the story for for, for that long a time, and I so said it's not very kind of a long film at all, but as it was going on, I was kind of becoming aware that it, it was getting quite repetitive, and there was a few things I really enjoyed about it. the fact that they can just kind of kill these people, and then just kind of just dump their bodies, kind of completely, um, you know, just, just throw them out in the rubbish as it were, and kind of act completely normally, and there's absolutely no kind of remorse or anything like that from what they're doing, they are just pursuing their kind of dream of opening this restaurant. And in a way, it's a kind of a a subversion of the whole kind of American dream anyway through a kind of black-twisted screwball comedy. And that really should make for quite a compelling film. But I thought after about 45 minutes that Eating Raoul was beginning to tail off. And although it had the kind of the occasional laugh still, I was really beginning to think that it was overstaying its welcome quite considerably. Now, strangely enough about this film, it, you know, it wasn't made of a huge budget at all, but it, you know, it was distributed by Fox, and it was, it was a, I suppose, a, a, a pretty good success, given the fact that you know, for a budget of 350000 it made just over a million dollars. But it's strange because I, I think Eaton all has this kind of um, cult reputation, and like a lot of instances, when films have cult reputations, I think sometimes that is a kind of a bit of a smokescreen um, for the actual quality of the, of the product. And it's certainly Eating all well for me, although I enjoyed it, although it, you know, it was kind of entertaining to an extent and obviously you know, it had the kind of the laughs. I didn't really think that it was anything too special, to be brutally honest with you. It was, if I was to kind of be, a, I suppose, a little bit sort of, I don't know, overly analytical, like oh you know, I'm going to probably veer into the territory of being pretentious here. I thought it was just quite kind of superficial. And like Nick yeah, said, you know, you can look at it as this kind of perverse kind of chasing of the American dream and the fact that, you know, so many people, you know, they, you have people who become incredibly rich in America and they just basically do it by kind of trampling on everyone and, you know, kind of substituting that for this kind of working class couple who kill people to get where they want. You know, is there any really difference? You can kind of go on and on down those kind of avenues with it. But I, I just thought it was quite shallow, really. there wasn't else much, really. And when a film has, you know a few moments of humour, I don't necessarily think that that sort of makes it out a, cl- a classic or anything like that. And it, it sort of... a lot, Like a lot of those those kind of um, screwball comedies and things like that, I, one of the reasons why I think I don't connect with them is because I, perhaps, perhaps I'm looking at the kind of... the world in which they kind of go on as a little bit too logically, you know. You know, really, are they, you know, they wouldn't be able to get rid of the bodies or anything like that, you know. It does seem quite strange, you know, and I just you know perhaps i'm just thinking of, uh, of the, you know thinking about the film in the context of taking place in the real world and obviously if you do that you know it doesn't make any sense at all but for me it was an enjoyable film but not something that i would really have any kind of interest in going back to anytime soon it's a bit of a shame because you know i was i was expecting um same kind of thing I had with kind of Harold and Maud, you know, I, I, was, I was thinking perhaps I might be thinking about the film a few days later and kind of, you know, my appreciation of it, of it growing. But Eating Rao I thought, was a, a fairly kind of disposable film. I, I can't see myself going back to it anytime soon. And, um, again, it was one of those uh, blind buy criterion Blu-ray purchases, which I dare say will sit in pristine condition on my shelf for a very long time. But just a quick word, actually, I was really impressed with the... um the transfer on the blu-ray and i say that because sometimes i think uh i think there's this kind of a spell from like the late 70s to kind of perhaps the mid 90s of films they didn't they don't quite look as good as they do now or they don't look as good as films preceding them even there's this kind of a bit of a a no man's land of how uh films from that period look a lot for a lot of them especially kind of the lower independent american stuff and i thought E.T. Merrill had a really good transfer it did look pretty good and um this also comes with a couple of short films that were quite good and there's there was quite an interesting commentary um from the screenwriter richard blackburn and one of the productions assistants on it which i quite enjoyed and i think it certainly um perhaps helped me appreciate the film a little bit more than if i hadn't listened to them but overall you know i'm, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who really enjoy eating around oh, i know there's a lot of excitement for when this one was announced and uh you know the as I hand hand I was talking about it, a friend of mine and he said that the DVD version of it is absolutely atrocious that was released previously so you know, if you are a fan of the film you know do pick up the Blu-ray and I think you'll be pretty happy with it Okay so the next film was spine number six two six which was Marcel Carney's 1942 the Devil's Envoys. Now, something dawned on me about this film halfway through, and I actually had to stop watching it and kind of just remind myself. Well, in fact, it just confirms myself that I was actually correct because the film was made in 1942 in France, and I suddenly thought to myself, "Well, God, wouldn't the country have been under Nazi occupation at the time?" And I went out and I did check, and yes, lo and behold, it was made uh, under the time of Nazi occupation. And I suddenly sat there and I thought. Oh my god! it you know that is it, it for some reason it blew my mind because, as I'll get to in a minute, the Devil's Envoys was a quite brilliant film and certainly one which um was an absolute delight to watch, but it suddenly made it's only dawned on, me you know, God really, what is the excuse of people like Michael Bay and Brett Ratner yeah how, how is it that you know these people who kind of live in a democracy and kind of you know really sort of free from any kind of massive oppression like Nazism can make such shit films and yet, you know, here's someone Marcel Carney, who you know you've got so much stuff going on in your country you've got these absolute arseholes running it and yet you go out and make a film as brilliant as The Devil's Envoys. Okay, so what's this film all about? Well, in 1485 the devil dispatches two envoys Giles and Dominique to the castle of Baron Huysh who on the night of the celebration of his daughter's engagement is having a bit of a party. Now, Giles and Dominique's mission from the devil is to ensure that the nuptials don't take place and everyone is going to be essentially miserable. However, what actually happens is Giles ends up falling in love with Anne and the Baron and Anne's fiancée, Renard, end up falling in love with Dominique. So the devil, who can't simply sit back and watch this happen, turns up at the castle to try and make sure everyone ends up miserable ever after now now although i kind of spoke so kind of uh, with so much admiration for the fact that the film was made in kind of nazi germany well sorry certainly in vichy france which was obviously under kind of nazi occupation i think you know to, to take that out of the context and just kind of not even think about it till you this is still i think a quite wonderful film now marcel carne he's you know somebody who's quite familiar to the criterion collection i mean um children of paradise is probably his kind of like of the most kind of notable inclusion in the collection i mean i've actually seen them all and i mean, obviously I own them all and he is a you know pretty wonderful filmmaker one of those ones which i yeah i'm glad that the the criterion collection kind of keep out there in the consciousness because there's that danger of course that people like him will sort of fade away really but i sort of like what certainly films from the kind of the French period of kind of the forties and the fifties, the sort of the, the fantasy type ones. And uh, certainly to kind of, I suppose a kind of a, a point of reference, although it's got kind of a very different story, of course, it sort of reminded me of the uh, Michael Curtis film, uh, the adventures of Robin Hood, because they kind of take place in this kind of mythical uh, world where, you know, although, you know, it's very much you know, meant to be set in a U- europe in the 1400s you know i'm sure it's nothing like how it how it would look and you know it, it this kind of wonderful white castle and the film kind of got me from the beginning really when kind of dominique and giles turned up at the castle and there was a guy who's um he was like a bear trainer and the guards that he was kind of coming running out of the the castle in tears because the guards had killed his bear just for fun. And he was obviously obviously ever so kind of distraught about it. And I remember I m- mentioned on a previous episode, the film Tyrannosaur in which I kind of just completely switched off because the character, um, essentially our spot, he actually kicks his own dog to death and he was meant to be the, uh, the, kind of the, the main protagonist of the film. And I actually hated him for it. And Charles and Dominic instantly won my affections when the, uh, the the, kind of the crying man gave them the lead to his bear and suddenly off screen you could suddenly see that the the lead was going taunt and obviously it kind of the camera kind of came out and we saw the fact that they'd brought the bear back to life and it was a wonderful moment because Giles makes some kind of offhand reference that occasion he just loves doing something nice for people, and it, it really kind of won my affections almost from the off because, you know, although they are kind of on a mission from the devil, they're not exactly evil. And I think one of the things that the film is about really is the fact that showing that, you know, the the course of true love will kind of overcome evil, and it's a kind of a I suppose, going back to this whole kind of thing, the fact that it's under Nazi occupation, I suppose. you know, Is there a kind of a bit of a subtext, a more subversive subtext, sorry, to what is going on? But, you know, I don't I don't, I don't, know. I might be reading way much too to into it, but I certainly think because of the fact and the, the circumstances under which you're made, it does kind of lend itself to that kind of interpretation. But it really was a modern-day fairy tale, and everything about it kind of reflects this, the sort of the... You know, Giles, played by Alain uh, Cooney, and Dominique by Arletti, are both both give, I, I think, really kind of nuanced performances. And a lot of times, I think, uh, older films, certainly the acting is very much about kind of big gestures. And these two, I think, really do put off quite a lot of subtlety to their characters. You know, Especially Arletti as Dominique, she's quite. Um, you, you can see why, I suppose, the kind of the, the Baron and Renard sort of fall in love with her because she does have this kind of quite. Uh, magnetic attraction about her and just the way she sort of handled them was so funny as well you know she sort of kind of plays them off each other and kind of plays with their emotions so much but also the fact that, that there is this kind of relationship between Giles and Dominic you know they're not just kind of two people being thrown together by the devil there is kind of a history between them and it, it was really quite sad as well at the same time and, and I, I when as I was watching it I was kind of aware of the fact that the kind of the 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 latent emotions that were going on and the kind of the relationship between the characters were actually quite moving. And it, as it was kind of working towards its conclusion, especially after the devil who turns up, played brilliantly by a chap called Jules Berry as well. He really, you know, the you, you think about the kind of direction they could have gone with the devil, and they kind of instead they made him this quite kind of amiable, kind of jovial, kind of happy-go-lucky guy, and it it certainly worked because it certainly what right, I think in keeping with the film. Because the other thing as well. I seem to remember from when I was studying um, Shakespeare at uh, at college when we're talking about kind of the courtly romance, and it has that feel to it, where you know, you could easily imagine this actually being a stage play, and I'd be wonder- I'd be quite interested to know if it ever has been kind of moved over to the theatre because I think it does lend itself to that kind of quality, and it is, it is quite theatrical. Yeah, you know, most of it does take place in the castle. There are some there are some some stuff outside but for the most part it takes place in this rather kind of wonderful whitewashed castle that you know it is straight out of a fairy tale and obviously it kind of twists on the sort of the fairy tale genre as well because despite all the kind of the brightness and the kind of the the, i suppose the apparent frothiness of the story there's a kind of a dark heart to the film this kind of idea that these kind of two envoys who are there to basically ruin and interfere with the course of true love but what you kind of find out really is the fact that There isn't actually anything like that, because Anne really doesn't want to marry uh, Renan anyway. He's a bit of a prick anyway. So their their actual kind of being there causes the... actually acts as an instigator for kind of true love to come to the surface. In a way, it's all very kind of heartwarming and uh, really works towards a, I think, a really emotional and rewarding ending. And it was one of these where, I suppose... As I was watching it, I wouldn't say this is kind of one of film that's going to be kind of bursting into my kind of top ten anytime soon. But it is certainly a film that I, I can see myself going back to several times. And Marcel Carné is you know, a very interesting director. I really do. If you haven't seen the other film, you're know, definitely Port of Shadows, Children of Paradise. Um, certainly check them out because they are in the collection. There has been a recent Blu-ray re-release of Children of Paradise, and I've, I've been led to believe it's actually a really disappointing um, one because. I know it's on Blu-ray.com, they kind of gave it two and a half out of five, which is really kind of unheard of for the criteria in Blu-rays. They're normally kind of, you know, pretty solid. Um so that wasn't the judgment of the film, by the way, as well, it's just you know the image quality and stuff like that. But it's recently come out in uh, Europe as well, and I think it was Studio Canal have put it out, and again it was they they've sourced it from the same print and very disappointing again. So a little bit disappointed of that, but certainly do check his films out. Overall as well, it's a fantastic package, um, especially there is a 2009 documentary about the making of the film which I can definitely recommend checking out. So so the next film to come out in September was Spy Number 627 which was David Finch's The Game and I was just about ready to, do a, to sit down and record my thoughts on The Game and I'm not going to kind of pull the trick of saying that I, I I you know, I haven't got time to talk about it, but what I realized when I was watching the game is i I honestly genuinely believe, believe that the game is possibly David Finch's best film, and I really wanted to kind of go off on it. And I I, I sat there thinking to myself, well, do I want to cover this on this episode or do I want to do something a lot bigger in the game? Because as I watched it again, I, I really genuinely believe it is a modern classic. And I know it's a film that kind of polarizes a lot of people. And I think it's the reasons why it polarizes people that is that attracts me to it so much. So I'm going to save the game for another day. Because I think uh, I'll either do a retrospective on David Fincher. You know, he's certainly a director whose who's tr- his work I'd be interested in kind of, you know, going into and exploring a lot more. I might do a close up episode on it. But for the time being, um the game is gonna be kind of put on the back burner until i can find um the time to record something a bit more um substantial on it. And I would say, and you know, obviously do my kind of pick of the months and perhaps, you know, picking the devil's envoys was up there but it's a shame I'm not really going to talk about the game because my pick of the month would be the game if you haven't seen it. And if you have already seen it, um, the, it's well worth picking up again because Criterion have really done a fantastic job with the Blu-ray release of this. The previous Blu-ray that came out was pretty crap, to be honest with you. And they've really gone back to and it. was it was actually released on Laserdisc um, by the Criterion in the 90s. And it kind of brings all of those features such as the commentaries of Fincher and uh, Michael Douglas. So... my my pick of the month would would have to be the game unfortunately i'm not going to be kind of talking about it much on this episode but if you have already got the game or you absolutely hate it i would have to pick out um i'd have to choose the devil's envoys i think that is a a a very different film and something you know which uh I I honestly don't think you might have seen before and something you'll certainly hopefully enjoy. So that's going to be it for this episode of the Criterion Roundups. I'm sorry it's been a little bit more kind of truncated than normal. However, normal service is going to be resumed when I at the end of this month, when I look at the October releases, because um, what a month um, October was. But overall, I thought kind of August and September, especially August, were really kind of bumps that re- really showed off why I love the Criterion Collection, you know, in particular August, I guess, because you have such a, a wide variety of films, you know, from kind of the modern films like Weekend to kind of, you know, gems from the golden age you know, like Lonesome and kind of like, you know, very kind of popularist films such as Quadrophina and, of course, those two Dardenne brother uh, releases. So what a great month August was. And, you know, September, again, you know, represented you know, mainstream Hollywood and independent American cinema and kind of classical French, you know, and I just think at the moment uh, Criterion is really a beacon of light for me in this kind of uh, rather drab world of film appreciation that appears to be out there at the moment and uh, I'm pretty certain that, you know, there's so many films to choose from. It's, uh, I think the Criterion was, collection was invented to extract money out of film-obsessed geeks. I It's, uh, you know, and the worst thing about it is it's just uh, sometimes when you spend money, you do it kind of wincing and kind of uh, against your will most of the times so But with the criterion collection that you just kind of like you seem to abandon any kind of critical thinking or, you know, kind of thought towards your bank statement and just click order and, uh, you know, long may it continue. So that's going to be it for this episode. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at 24framescast. You can, you can email me at 24framescast at gmail.com and you can follow me on the blog at 24 cast blogspot.com many thanks for listening and i will be in contact soon bye